Well, as we move forward in worship now, we're going to look at God's Word, and so we have uh, four scripture passages that we're going to read. Um, Pat will read for us our main text from Luke chapter 9, verses 37 to 50, and uh, what you'll notice as we read that passage is there's four different stories in here of ways that the disciples uh, fall short or fail in their calling to be um, true disciples of Jesus Christ. And we see how Jesus is sufficient and Jesus corrects them. And so in these other readings that we're going to do, um, these other readings are also going to point us how even though we as disciples of Jesus are weak, that Jesus is strong and we can always look to him. And so uh, Jackie and Cassie will come up and read for us John 15, uh, 4 and 5. And then Emily will come up and read for us 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. And then finally, Don will come up and read for us John 12, uh, 23 and 24. And again, I just encourage you to look in these passages for ways that that God is calling us to be weak and to own our weaknesses in order that he can show his sufficiency through us. And so let me pray once again, just briefly, that God would open our eyes to understand his word and would help me to preach his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we do ask that as your word is read right now, would your spirit be at work in our hearts, Lord, and in our minds to open our spiritual eyes to understand what your word is saying to us. Lord, help us not to be um, deaf and resistant to you, um, but help us, Lord, right now to have tender hearts, Lord, that are ready to receive your word and are ready to respond to your word. And then, Lord, I pray especially that you would help me as I preach your word, Lord, to preach it with accuracy and with power. Lord, I myself am a weak and foolish man in need of much help if I am to faithfully present your word. And so, Lord, I also look to you, God, and ask you to strengthen me um, even as I preach. I ask all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 9, verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they may not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. 
John fifteen four and 5. Abide in me, and I in you, you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Second Corinthians twelve nine to 10 But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. John twelve twenty three twenty four, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I invite you to leave your Bibles open to Luke chapter 9. Again, we'll be looking especially at verses 37 uh, through 50 this morning. Now, before we come to this passage, I want to uh, frame the primary issue that I think this passage is addressing to us this morning. And the primary issue can really be put as simply as this. What is the primary aim of the Christian faith? What is the primary aim of the Christian faith? There are really two different ways to answer this question. One way of thinking about the primary aim of the Christian faith is to think of it as God really wants us to be good people. And so as we grow in Christ, as we become better and better Christians, really what we want to see happen is that we should become better and better people. We should be stronger, we should be healthier, we should be more morally upright, and that this is really what God wants from us. Indeed, I think this is the view of the Christian faith that I very much grew up with and the way that I thought God wanted me to live through much of my childhood, even though I grew up in the church, I thought that what God most wanted out of me was to make me a good person. I thought that's why I went to church. That's why my family was religious. I thought that's what this was all about. But there's a second way to look at the great aim of the Christian faith, and I believe that this second way to look at it is much more compelling and is much more true to Scripture. And that second way of looking at the aim of the Christian faith is that God wants you to be united to him. God wants you to have such a close relationship with him that you ultimately know God's power working in you and through you. Now, if you imagine being a person that has God's power working in you and through you, does that mean that you will be a a strong person and a good person? Well, yes, of course, outwardly it will appear that way because God's power is magnificent. He is mighty. He is faithful, as we just sang about. He is never failing. And so you yourself will seem to be a steady and a powerful and never failing person. And yet it is important to recognize that even though you may appear that way on the outside as others look at you, 
The reality is that as we grow in the Christian faith, we are not growing in some inherent ability that we have to be good or upright or righteous. What we are growing in is recognizing our weakness and dependence upon God. And so inside, the reality that we will experience is just knowing that we have a vast ocean of sin in our hearts, knowing that we have a vast ocean of inadequacy and weakness in our hearts. And yet, even though we know that we have this vast ocean of emptiness within us, we know more and more that there is an even vaster ocean of God's power and blessing that is able to fill us. And so in this way, the the growth of the Christian life is not a growth into self-sufficiency or some feeling of competence and well-being. Rather, growth in the Christian faith is growth in seeing our weaknesses more and more and yet knowing the power of Christ in us all the more. I think that this is clearly what we see presented to us in this passage this morning. As I mentioned just before we read, what we see in our passage this morning is four different little snapshots of the disciples in Jesus Christ. In each of these four snapshots, what is being presented is disciples who have somehow gone astray, who still do not understand what Jesus is all about, what his message really is, how to really live for him, and the fact that they still need to have Jesus there teaching them and being with them and empowering them for what they ought to do. And so we're going to look at each of these four things this morning, but before we do that, let's just look at it overall so I can show you where the four different stories are. So again, we start this morning in verse 37 of chapter 9. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, the spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. So here we have the first story. Clearly, a man who needed healing for his son and said that he even begged the disciples to cast it out, but the disciples could not. And so that, of course, raises the question in our minds, well, why could the disciples not cast it out? Again, at the very beginning of chapter 9, the very first verse of this chapter says that he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons. So Jesus had given them the power, but it seems that somewhere along the way they had forgotten where this power came from. They had stopped walking in fellowship with Jesus Christ, and instead, apparently, they became self-sufficient thinking that they somehow inherently had power over demons apart from Jesus. And so they were not able to cast out this demon, and Jesus had to rebuke them as faithless and twisted. And so this is the first example we see of disciples who are not joined to Jesus Christ, but think that they are strong in themselves. Then the second example we get is the second half of verse 23. 
It says, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your hearts. Sorry, sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And so here's Jesus in the very next story presenting to his disciples the main reason why he came to earth, the whole goal of his mission, which is to die for sinners, to be delivered into the hands of men. But his disciples, they just, it's totally beyond them. Again, they're thinking in terms of their own strength, their own abilities. And this idea that their, their rabbi, their teacher, is going to be delivered over to men just makes no sense. And, and it even says that they're fearful of Jesus. They don't want to ask him what this means. And so they're not in this close connection with Jesus as they should be, but they're looking to their own wisdom and their own understanding. The next story starts in verse 46. It says, An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So Jesus clearly sees the pattern developing in his disciples' lives, that they are full of pride, that they are full of their own strength, that they're not thinking of their need for Christ. And so he brings in this example of a child to put in front of them, and he exhorts them that they must receive that child and be like him. And then lastly, in verses 49 and 50, says, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And so in this last example, we see the disciples looking for some sort of exclusivity as the sign of their uniqueness or as a sign of how they're better than others. But Jesus is reminding them in this that the mission is so much greater than their own sense of pride or ability that whoever is doing good work should be received and rejoiced in and accepted. And so again, in all these four ways, what we see Jesus doing is pointing out how we ourselves cannot live in our own strength by our own wisdom, with our own resources. But we must look We must look to him always. We must know that the goal of our faith is not to store up enough resources or to become strong enough or just to become good. But the goal of our faith is to learn day by day that we must depend upon him. That we must look to him as an intimate friend, as a savior, and as a Lord. You see, ultimately, the way that the disciples were looking at Jesus was they were looking at him as some sort of colleague. You know, Jesus had given them these powers and these abilities, and so they thought, well, now we're on par with Jesus, and it's good that he's still here to kind of help us and guide us. But I see that we're working as teammates. You know, we're working together. But the reality is that us and Jesus will never be teammates. We will never simply be colleagues. Jesus will always be Lord and Savior, and we will always be humble servants dependent upon him in every way. 
Again, at the beginning of our service, we started off with Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, which said that God's ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And so we know that regardless of how much we may grow in the Christian life, how mature we may become, how morally strong, how wealthy, how healthy, whatever the case may be, ultimately what we need is the Lord who is above us and is higher than us. And so let's walk through these four stories now to see what more can be gleaned for us about how we are to live in daily dependence upon Jesus Christ. So again, in verse, verses 37 to 43, we've seen that there is this story of a demon that is seizing a young boy and a father that is bringing the boy to the disciples in order to be healed. And verse 40, again says, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. So up to this point, the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the disciples has largely been a ministry of great success. We started looking at the character of Jesus back in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus was just preaching his very first sermon. Nobody had ever heard of Jesus or really even knew who he was. All they did know about him was that this is Jesus who is Joseph's son, right? The son of a carpenter. And yet Jesus comes into Nazareth in Luke chapter 5, and he proclaims that he is the one who was promised by the prophet Isaiah. And everybody is just baffled. They think, really? This boy who we've known growing up in this town all along, you now say that you are the one who is promised to us by the prophet Isaiah? And so even though Jesus' ministry gets off to this very small start with no one knowing him, and indeed, after that sermon, Jesus gets kicked out of the town, and they don't even want to see him around again. But ever since then, crowds upon crowds start coming to Jesus. Jesus starts casting out demons. He starts healing the sick. He starts forgiving sins. He starts doing every good thing for anyone who would come and would hear his teaching and would obey him and would listen to him. And so as he does all of these wonderful things, more and more people begin to flock to Jesus to the point where in chapter 8, we start to see that even when Jesus and his disciples try to withdraw to some desolate place, they try to go out in the wilderness, people still follow Jesus out there. Because they know Jesus' power. They know his grace and his love. And so everybody is so attracted to Jesus that he, is, he has these vast crowds around him. And so as a result, it is very easy to see why the disciples may start to think that they have great power and great ability. Everybody is surging around them. The ministry seems to be going from strength to strength. And yet here comes this boy with a demon. And no doubt when this boy with the demon comes up to these disciples, these disciples think, oh, we've done this a hundred times. We'll do it a hundred and one times. And yet suddenly they find themselves unable to cast out this demon. This demon has such hold of the boy that the disciples do not know what to do. And the only thing they can do is turn to Jesus, is to send this father to Jesus Christ. 
And of course, at this point, someone who is reading the Gospel of Luke for the first time may wonder, well, Jesus has just said that he is going to be delivered over to the hands of men, that he is going to suffer and die. Perhaps Jesus is beginning to lose his power himself. And yet we see this boy brought to Jesus, and Jesus, just like always, is able with a word to cast out this demon. And says that as the boy came close to Jesus, the demon seems to even recognize the power of Jesus, and he throws the boy to the ground and he convulses him. But Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit, and the spirit leaves him. And so we see that even when the disciples are not able, even when the disciples are not full of strength, Jesus is full of strength. Beloved, one lesson in this for us is that many people have left Jesus Christ and left the faith because the church itself, because Jesus' disciples have somehow disappointed them. And the point here is that Jesus' disciples will always be Jesus' disciples. They will never be Jesus. They will always be imperfect. They will always be sinners. And if we want to know if we should follow Jesus, we must fix our eyes on Jesus himself. We can never simply look to his church and say, well, the disciples can't do this or they don't do that and they should do that. Yes, disciples are sinful people. That's why we need Jesus Christ. And so instead of looking to the ability of the disciples, look to the ability of Jesus Christ. The second lesson that I think this holds for us is that sometimes God must show us our weakness before we cast ourselves on him. The disciples should have been relying on Jesus day by day, regardless of whether ministry was going great or whether ministry was going terribly. They should have known every single day that they needed Jesus at their side if they were to do any good thing. And yet the reality is that as ministry flourished, as they had success in their work, as their family was doing well, as their bank account was increasing, as all of these things were going well, what happened was that they forgot about God. They forgot about their need for him. They started to think, yeah, we've got this. We've really figured it out. We have it all sorted out now. And so God had to intervene in their life and humble them in this way. And oh, how humbling it must have been (laughs) for these disciples who with all confidence, I'm sure, were rebuking this demon and casting it out. And yet this demon mocked them and would not listen. And how it was only in that moment when they saw that we must actually need Jesus Christ. And so, beloved, the lesson for you is that when hardship comes your way, whether it's a a physical hardship like health or finances, whether it's some kind of public embarrassment, like which is what the disciples experienced here, when something doesn't go your way, it is God striving to humbly remind you that you need him daily, that you can do nothing apart from him. So don't despise your weakness and try to get rid of it. Try to cover it up. But as Paul says, boast in your weaknesses, knowing that it is your weaknesses that remind you of your need for Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is a battle that I have constantly faced in my own walk with the Lord. I will have seasons of life where I will just spiritually abound so highly that I feel like I could not be any closer to God. 
And in those moments, my heart will be so full of joy and happiness in Jesus Christ that I think I could just go on forever. And in those moments also, because my spirit is flourishing, it can also seem like my family is flourishing and my work is flourishing. And so I'll have weeks where I just seem to go on this positive trajectory. But then for some reason, after some weekend, I'll wake up one Monday morning and all of a sudden my, my mindset will be, I, I can do without prayer this morning. I can do without my Bible this morning. I can probably get through this day on my own. And, and sure, maybe tomorrow I will, I will turn to Jesus again. But then, of course, tomorrow comes and I'll think, well, yesterday went pretty good, you know. I got by okay without Jesus. And so another day will pass. No prayer. No word of God. And before I know it, a whole week has gone by. Two weeks have gone by. And my word, my Bible has gone untouched. I've prayed for just a scarce few moments. And only then I start to feel hungry in my soul. I start to feel thirsty. Where I realize that I was wicked to my wife or to my children in some way. Or I I messed up in ministry in some way. And all of a sudden I'm reminded, oh my goodness, I really need Jesus Christ. I really need him by my side today, not just two weeks ago. And so I turn again and all of a sudden I dive back into God's word and back into prayer. Knowing that I really need him. Beloved, it should not be this way. It is the the wickedness of my own heart that thinks that when I am abounding, when I am feeling well, doing well, that somehow I can make it by without Jesus. When the reality is that I am no less dependent on Jesus, even in my moments of greatest strength, than in my moments of greatest weakness. So I encourage you to not fall into the trap that I fall into and turn to Jesus daily, whether you really feel like you need to or not. You do need him, and you will lose your power quickly if you do not turn to him. Next we see in the second half of verse 43, down to verse 45, the the second story that, that Luke gives us about the weakness of the disciples. It says that while they were all, all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. So again, picture the setting. Jesus has just cast out this demon. Everyone once again is amazed at Jesus' power over demons. And so you would think at this time that this is the perfect time where Jesus has just demonstrated his power, his lordship, his majesty. This would be a good time to listen to Jesus. And Jesus even begins his words with the words, let these words sink into your ears. In other words, he's saying, hear this, pay attention to me right now. And then he says, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Clearly, this is a statement of weakness. This is a statement that Jesus is not going to continue to carry on in ministry as it has been up to this point. He is not simply going to abound and flourish all the more. Rather, he is about to set his face to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he will be delivered over to the high priests and to the Roman authorities. And he will suffer and he will die. But again, the disciples, they don't want to hear this. Their whole vision of following Jesus right now is that they become stronger and stronger. They become better and better. 
And that's the reason why in verse 45 it says they do not understand the saying and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. It wasn't time yet for them to understand that the way of following Jesus Christ is the way of weakness, is the way of emptiness. And again, it says they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Beloved, there are many things that God will instruct you to do in your individual life, simply by speaking to your heart, or maybe God will reveal it to you in his word that he wants you to do something that will be confusing to you, that will be challenging to you, that may turn upside down what you thought was the way that things ought to be done. And in those moments, you are not to be like the disciples who fear going to Jesus and asking him, what does this mean? Am I really supposed to do this? Rather, again, we are to see that we can only live our lives day by day in communion with Jesus Christ, asking him when we have questions, wrestling with him, when we have battles with what he is telling us to do. And so we must turn to him, even in confusion, even in doubt, even when maybe we think our question is a little bit irreverent, where we think that we should maybe just blindly accept whatever is coming from Scripture. Beloved, instead of thinking what you ought to do or how strong you ought to be, admit that you do not know, admit that you are weak, and simply turn to Jesus Christ. And say, Lord Jesus, I need you to explain this to me now. I need your help right now. I am weak. I do not understand. And Jesus loves those requests. He loves those prayers. And he will graciously answer you as you turn to him in faith. And so do not hide your questions and your doubts. Do not hide your weaknesses from Jesus Christ. But bring them to him so that he can speak to you, and so he can explain to you the way that you ought to go. Next, in verse 46, we see the story of the disciples arguing about who is the greatest. And then in verse 47, it says, Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. This idea that Jesus knows the, the reasoning of their hearts it's very plain that Jesus knows our created form. He knows what sin has done to us and what the fall has done to us. He knows how, because of the fall, we exalt, we rejoice, not in dependence upon God, but we rejoice in independence, and we rejoice in strength, and we rejoice in greatness and ability and power. He knows our frame. And beloved, you must know your frame as well. You must know that as you live the Christian life, your continual bent is going to be toward independence. It is going to be toward getting stronger, getting better, being good enough on your own. This is the natural way of man. It is like gravity in our hearts constantly pulling us away from Jesus Christ. The very first sin that happened in the garden when Eve looked at that fruit after Satan told her about the fruit and she said, well, this fruit does look very pleasing to the eye and it would be very nice to be wise. This is man's attempt to be great without God. And this is what all of us do instinctually day by day. 
We say, I I want to be great. I want to be good. It is a human impulse. But we must realize where true greatness comes from. And so that's what Jesus says in the coming verses. He said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. When Jesus brings that child in front of them, a child especially in in Jesus' time was one who was to be seen and not heard. A child is, by definition, one who is not very strong, not very powerful. A child is one who does not get recognition of any sort. A child is one who is dependent upon its parents. And so Jesus is saying, if you are to be great, you must be dependent. You must look to me. You must acknowledge your weakness. And only then can you be great in the kingdom of heaven. And then again, lastly, in verses 49 and 50, it says, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Again, in these verses, we see clearly how human beings desire exclusivity, how they take that as their mark of greatness. I think even among churches, we see that each church desires to to stand out in some remarkable way, to be unique and better than every other church. And yet what Jesus is saying here is that if someone else is casting out demons in my name, this is the very thing I'm telling you to do. And so don't try to stop them from doing, don't take as your mark of significance or your mark of greatness the fact that you can do something that nobody else can do. Take of your mark as greatness that you are simply following my instructions, that you are doing what I told you to do. And if somebody else is doing what I told them to do, then rejoice in that as well. Beloved, it would be my joy if there were no competition between churches. If every church was simply preaching the same gospel, using the same methods of ministry, following Jesus Christ, this is the unity that Jesus Christ designed for the church. We ought not to be competing against one another, trying to find ways to edge out and be better than other churches. Rather, we say, we follow Jesus Christ. We love and delight when other churches follow Jesus Christ. And we feel no impulse whatsoever to mark out ourselves as better than them or as higher than them. We are simply trying to follow our Savior as we trust they are as well. And so, beloved, our significance does not come from any special ability that we have. We are not exclusive. I pray that when anyone comes into the doors of this church, they feel no kind of test for qualification whatsoever? Like, are they good enough to be here? No, we are a weak people. We are a people who depend upon Jesus Christ. And in fact, the only kind of disqualification you could have from being part of us is if you think you don't need Jesus Christ, if you think you are too good or better than what he has to offer. In all these ways, I'd like to close with an analogy to to Marvel movies, if you'll allow me. Um, 
in, in the Marvel movies, we see uh, two different kinds of superheroes, I think. And the two that I'll pick out especially are Spider-Man and Iron Man. Now, the difference between these two superheroes is that Spider-Man, you know, he was bit, I think, by some radioactive spider. And since Spider-Man was bit by the spider, he himself gets all these super strength and super agility, and he can do lots of amazing things because he was bit by the spider. And regardless of of whether or not he has on his spider suit, he has many great abilities. He is able to go and he's able to use his superpowers wherever he may be. If he's just dressed in normal clothes or has on a special suit or whatever the case may be, that's the type of superhero that Spider-Man is. Now, on the other hand, we have a superhero like Iron Man. Now, Iron Man does have a, a special heart. I think he's got like a power plant in his chest or something like that. But ultimately, he's just a normal man. He does not have super strength. He's just really, really smart. And so because he is really, really smart, he was able to build himself this suit. And when he is in this suit, he gets these special powers and abilities that he could never have without the suit. He can fly. He has super strength. He can shoot missiles. He can do all these things with his suit that he cannot do in his own strength. And I think that for us Christians, this is just a great picture of how we are to live the Christian faith. We are to live the Christian faith as Iron Man and not as Spider-Man. Again, for too many years in my faith, I thought that being a Christian meant I was somehow bit by this radioactive spider, meaning that I prayed this prayer to get saved, and then after I prayed that prayer, I was just different, and now I had special abilities, so no matter where I went— I just had this power of Jesus working in me, and I didn't even need to to look to his word each day or go to him in prayer each day. It was just an attribute that I had. But over time, I have come to see that God's design for us is that we be much more like Iron Man, where without our suit, without putting on Jesus Christ daily, we are nothing. We are weak. We are just like everybody else in the world. And beloved, the only reason why we have this great, glorious Iron Man type suit offered to us is because Jesus Christ himself put on a suit for us. Except Jesus himself did not put on a suit of glory and power and might. Rather, Jesus himself has all glory and power and might, and he put on the suit of fleshly and weak humanity. And he came to earth and he died so that we could have his glorious and amazing suit that he left behind in heaven. And so, beloved, know that even though the Christian life is a journey into weakness, it is an acceptance of our faults and of our failures. It is a glorying in the fact that we may never be rich and we don't care if we're rich. We may never be successful, and we don't care if we're successful, even though we leave these earthly things behind. Beloved, there is a power and there is a majesty majesty stored up for us in Jesus Christ that is far better than anything else that we could ever have. And so, beloved, I encourage you to boast in your weaknesses. Don't hide them from one another. Don't try to get rid of them or minimize them. Boast in them, recognize them, acknowledge them. As we go to prayers of confession now, confess that you are a sinner and that you need Jesus' forgiveness. This does not make you less of a Christian. It makes you more of one, beloved. 
to recognize your need for Christ each and every day. And so let me open us in prayer right now. And then again, I invite you to offer your own prayers of confession to God, prayers of petition to God. What do you want to see God do? And of course, parents, you are uh, dismissed to go get your children as well. But let me open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you do not require us to be strong and mighty in order to come into your presence. You don't require us to be perfect. You don't require us to be wise or wealthy or any such thing, God. You only require us to acknowledge our weakness. And so, God, I pray that you would help each of us to do that this morning, Lord. Help each of us to have eyes to see those weaknesses you have given to us, and then help us to have hearts, Lord, that give thanks for those weaknesses, God, that don't despise them or try to remove them, but hearts that say, because of these weaknesses, I will turn to Jesus Christ.